Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, July 20, 2023 reading of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. News. Cash Flow. Federal Initiative promises equity-based climate action, but local results are still to be seen. By Kaylee Harder, July 20, 2023. During his first few days in office, President Biden set out to promote equity in federal climate action with the stroke of a pen. The signing of Executive Order 14008 created the Justice 40 Initiative, mandating 40% of climate-related investments from certain federal agencies flow to communities identified as underserved and overburdened by pollution. With 263 census tracts in Colorado, three in Boulder County, qualify as disadvantaged, many communities have yet to see the benefits of Justice 40, leaving leaders to grapple with how to ensure the money gets to those who need it most. Quote, This is something that in the next year and a half is going to be delivering hundreds of billions of dollars, and our communities need to be kept up on that so that the federal government money is invested in the communities that it was intended for, those that have been most disproportionately affected for the last 50 years, unquote, says Green Latinos President Mark Magana, who lives in Boulder and is part of a Justice 40 collective that provided recommendations to the federal government. Brett Fleischman, who stepped into his current role as senior climate strategist at Boulder County's Office of Sustainability, Climate Action and Resilience in 2021, says his first big task was figuring out the county's strategy, quote, to the single largest investment the federal government has ever placed in climate action, unquote. The county has applied for several grants that would be covered by Justice 40, including a project to add more electric vehicle charging stations across the county and another that would invest in increasing the urban tree canopy to reduce heat. Each is a multi-million dollar grant that will be awarded to recipients in the fall. Money moves slowly through the federal government, Fleischman says, but he expects 2024 to be a big year for Justice 40 covered funding coming through the Inflation Reduction Act. Quote, Justice 40 is vague, it's frustrating, it's slow, Fleischman says, but it's a really smart policy because all the local governments are forced into the process, unquote. Boulder County is part of a regional coalition on the Front Range 
that was awarded $3 million to be distributed this summer as part of the Climate Pollution Reduction Grant Program. The initiative is designed to help states, local governments, tribes, and territories develop strategies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and other air pollution. But since the Justice 40 initiative was created via presidential fiat, there's a fear a new administration could reverse the order if Biden loses his re-election attempt in 2024. Quote, We think the Biden administration and federal agencies are moving quickly to establish things and get money out the door, because once it's out the door, you can't claw it back, Fleischman says. But if they take too long to set up the programs and there's an administration change, then those programs are vulnerable, unquote. Mitigation is a luxury. Some Justice 40 money has already flowed into Colorado using more than $32 million from the Department of Energy, Colorado School of Mines, Golden, and Carbon America, Arvada, will collaborate with New Mexico-based Los Alamos National Laboratory to explore the feasibility of a carbon storage site in Pueblo. The funding covers the first phase of the project, which includes data collection, planning, site characterization, and analyzing potential social and environmental risks. Quote, Whatever we do will be done with an eye toward environmental justice, to social justice, to equity, unquote, says Monica Prasad, who is leading the project and is director of the Mines Carbon Capture Utility and Storage Innovation Center. In the early portion of this project, this means training on equitable hiring practices and hosting town halls in the community. If the site is feasible, it would be able to store 50 million tons of CO2 over 30 years. Quote, Mitigation is a luxury that more affluent societies have, Prasad says. We're coming in to say, no, mitigation needs to be where the problem is, not where the money is, unquote. Justice 40's screening tool identifies disadvantaged communities using factors like legacy pollution, wastewater discharge, and energy costs coupled with low income by census tract. Fleischman says that system has its flaws, and the county hopes to use a more comprehensive and granular list of indicators. Quote, Sometimes a mobile home community is in the same census block group as a wealthy community, and when you put those two together, that census block group doesn't look like the Justice 40 block group, he says. The wealthy homes just wash out the statistics, unquote. Race is not used as an indicator in the screening tool, likely because the administration believes they wouldn't stand up to a Supreme Court challenge. Quote, they try to use other things that oftentimes will be an overlay of racial disproportionate effects, like income or housing density, unquote, Magania says. Boulder County Commissioner Marta Loacamin says a successful Justice 40 investment will require bringing people of color to the table and moving past the planning phase of projects. Quote, 
We've been asking and we've been telling and we've been sharing and we've been in focus groups and we've been studied and we've been researched, she says. We have an opportunity with Justice 40 to bring folks of color and organizations who are led by folks of color to truly create this plan and to implement the work, unquote. We've had enough trickle down. While the executive order only mandates 40% of investments benefit disadvantaged communities, Magana says the funds need to be invested directly into those communities. Quote, I'm hoping they still do an investment analysis, he says, not just how did the benefits trickle down to this community? We've had enough trickle down, unquote. Magana says many small organizations and communities may be unaware of Justice 40 or may be intimidated by long, cumbersome grant applications. Quote, it's a heavy lift to be able to go from a one, two, three person under-resourced organization to one that's going to be a primary applicant for federal government funding, Magana says. We wanted to make sure government entities knew that communities of color needed significant technical assistance to really even participate in federal grants, let alone be the primary applicants, unquote. It starts, Magana says, with education about Justice 40 and what qualifies. Then communities need access to technical assistance and matchmaking opportunities for larger organizations that have experience with federal funding to partner, quote, with groups that really have the specialty to do the on-the-ground work, unquote. As climate change intensifies, Fleischman says equity is more urgent than ever. Quote, the poor and marginalized always sort of carry the brunt of most crises, he says. This is a moment for us to absorb the tool and make it part of what we do and part of government so that when things get harder, it's like muscle memory, unquote. Opinion, Letters and Corrections, July 20, 2023, by readers like you. Editor's Note, the news story, Turf War, published on July 13, included an inaccurate account of lethal prairie dog mitigation allegedly used by Boulder County. A quote suggested that ongoing efforts to control the spread of prairie dog colonies included poisoning via pellets, a method the county hasn't used in more than a decade. The online version of the story has been updated to reflect this. Regarding turf war, Deanna Meyer of Prairie Protection, Colorado, used the term, quote, war on wildlife, unquote, referring to Boulder County Parks and Open Space and its actions towards prairie dogs. See News Turf War, July 13, 2023. War on wildlife is not hyperbole and goes well beyond prairie dogs. The starkest examples regarding what I choose to call free-living or free-roaming animals are hunting, fishing, and trapping, whose legality and euphemism as sport is unconscionable, an atrocity, clearly a war on innocent, living, feeling individuals. 
Regardless of what words one uses to describe it, the human species has perpetuated a war, exploiting, harming, and killing on virtually all other than human animals, be it for food, clothing, experimentation, entertainment, and in virtually any areas of life. The root cause of this issue may best be termed speciesism, which Joan Dunayer, author of the book Speciesism and Animal Equality, Language and Liberation, defines as, quote, a failure on the basis of species membership or species typical characteristics to accord any sentient being equal consideration and respect, unquote. Our attitudes and actions towards non-human animals who are legally defined as property with no legal rights clearly exemplifies speciesism. May we individually and collectively look deeply into our hearts, consider all the living entities with whom we share the earth, and make choices that cause the least harm to any individual, non-human or human. Only then will we move toward a kindler, gentler, more just world for all. From Mark Weisenfeld, Boulder. Regarding hearing history, Chautauqua's 125th birthday. Growing up, I lived just a few blocks from Chautauqua. Going to the movies there in the 60s were some of the highlights of my childhood. The concessionaire sold little bags of popcorn for 10 cents. I believe the movies were 50 cents, and they were always family-friendly. There were a lot of Doris Day movies and Disney movies, like Pollyanna, The Absent-Minded Professor, or Son of Flubber. Nights were cool, occasionally a skunk would wander down the aisles or under the seats, and a few bats would flutter under the lights. My favorite memory was one night when Paint Your Wagon was playing. There was a scene in the movie with a busty, quote, woman of the night, unquote. A man jumped up, yelling it was filth, and we should all be ashamed of ourselves, as he dragged his little boy out of the auditorium. The man had his hands over his child's eyes, while he himself couldn't take his eyes off the screen. Movie nights at Chautauqua were wonderful. From Lee's Cordson in Boulder. Entertainment, Stage, American Dreaming, Colorado premiere of Edmonds Stories by Theatre Company of Lafayette explores immigration at the turn of the 20th century by Tony Tresca, July 20, 2023. Nora Douglas decided to get personal when she started working on her master's thesis in playwriting at the University of Washington. Rather than writing a fictional story, she drew inspiration for her play, Edmund's Stories, from her family's history of immigrating to the United States from Sweden in the early 1890s. Quote, the script is loosely based on my great-grandparents' experience moving to Minnesota, then Seattle, and finally Edmonds, Washington, sometime around 1892, Douglas says. My great-grandmother had five daughters, four of whom worshipped her, and one of whom left town to live in Canada. 
Although this breach was not directly discussed, as a young child hiding behind the stove, I overheard my aunts discussing it and could tell that something major had occurred. Edmund's Stories explores mother-daughter conflicts and the difficulties faced by immigrant families, unquote. Douglas recently received the opportunity to revisit Edmund's stories, which she first wrote more than 30 years ago in graduate school, thanks to her longtime friend and artistic director of the Theatre Company of Lafayette, TCL, Madge Montgomery. They met as undergrads at the University of Puget Sound, and according to Douglas, were each other's support systems while pursuing graduate degrees at the University of Washington. Together, the duo produced the original workshop of the show at the university in 1988, which led to a main stage production the following year. In 1990, Edmund's stories participated in the ACTF Regional Festival at Western Washington University and was performed by the Driftwood Players in Edmonds as part of the City of Edmonds Centennial Celebration. Quote, It is a dream come true to be working with Madge again on a play I thought had been put to bed, Douglas says. Edmonds Stories was the first play I wrote in graduate school, and Madge directed that play in two different venues with two different casts. In many ways, I feel like I have returned home with this production at the Theatre Company of Lafayette, unquote. A Human Story Edmonds Stories will make its Colorado debut on July 21 at Lafayette's Mary Miller Theatre, running through August 5. Set in Edmonds in 1900, the award-winning play examines the Medin family's pursuit of the American dream. It also touches on the importance of honoring one's heritage and questions how much immigrants are expected to sacrifice in order to assimilate. Quote, Immigration has become a hot-button topic, unquote, says Montgomery, who is directing Edmund's stories at TLC. Quote, but unless you are indigenous, you have immigrant stories in your family. Nora's play is not overtly political. Instead, it tells the story of ordinary people who happen to be immigrants adjusting to a new environment. Unquote. Although the play contains weighty, introspective moments, the creative team says the production is full of heart. Quote, While the subject is serious, there is a lot of humor, Montgomery says. It's not a slog. There are a lot of dimensions to show the full experience of immigrants. The play manages to be both deeply human and intensely personal, while also being complex and layered. Edmund's stories had been on my list of projects to direct again for a while because I thought the story would resonate with the community and work well in our theater, TLC's intimate 75-seat theater allows audience members to easily connect with the family's struggles. However, it also presents Montgomery with some directorial challenges. Quote, Our theater is a little unusual. It is a small space, but this is a big play, she says. As a director, it has been challenging adapting a piece that was written for a large space to our theater. 
We use the aisles in every inch of the space. There are ten characters in the play, so that is a lot of actors on a little stage. Ultimately, I think the intimacy of our theater is a benefit for the production. This is a lovely human story, and I think people will feel emotionally close to it because they are physically close to the actors." Unquote. The multicultural cast of Edmund's stories at TLC, including two performers who immigrated to the U.S. from Brazil and the Philippines, highlights the universality of the immigrant experience and how, despite our differences, our stories are ultimately similar. Quote, I hope the audience understands the family's struggles and triumphs to make America their home, Douglas says. I would like people to think about the larger societal implications of this personal story and remember to have empathy for people who are different and struggling to find their place in this country. We live in such a divisive era, but treating immigrants as a problem is not the answer. America is and always has been better off because of immigrants." Unquote. On stage, Edmund's Stories by Theatre Company of Lafayette, various times July 21 through August 5 at the Mary Miller Theatre, 300 East Simpson Avenue in Lafayette. Tickets can be bought at tclstage.org. Entertainment, music, something loud. Jimmy Eat World looks back on 30 years and share their favorite Colorado haunts ahead of Red Rock's performance. By Jesse J. Gray, July 20, 2023. Last summer's comeback single from time-tested rock institution Jimmy Eat World, the first new music from the Arizona-born outfit since before the pandemic lockdown, hangs on an urgent arena-ready question, do you still feel part of something loud? If you ask 47-year-old frontman Jim Adkins, who co-founded the band with drummer and lifelong friend Zach Lind in 1993, the answer is a deafening yes. Quote, There's a part of me that I think will always identify as the 14-year-old metal kid going to hardcore shows for the first time and having my mind blown, unquote says the creative force behind some of the most definitive teenage anthems of the 21st century. The most inescapable of those anthems came in the fall of 2001, when The Middle smashed into the culture during the last gasp of the MTV era, with its bouncy, palm-muted guitars, crashing cymbals, and life-affirming chorus, It Just Takes Some Time, a generation still buzzing from the sugar rush of 90s pop punk collectively wailed into their hairbrushes. The track sailed to number five on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Suddenly, the band, who had plazed a new trail through the basements of the previous decade's burgeoning second wave emo scene, found themselves on the top of the airwaves plunked between Eminem and Vanessa Carlton as the last insurgent indie hitmakers of the pre-streaming landscape. Quote, When things took off for us in the most more commercial mainstream space, 
we just kept operating the way we always did, being focused on the things within your control and being proud of your records, Atkins says. We've done months-long tours playing for nobody, and we've opened up for Green Day at Giant Stadium, but we're the same band playing the same songs. So a lot of this stuff isn't really up to you, and you won't make it very long if you take those things that aren't up to you and make them all about you, because they're not going to go your way most of the time. So if you just focus on things like chasing creative ideas that are exciting to you and making music that is rewarding and challenging for you, then it's a win, unquote. Don't write yourself off yet. Jimmy Eat World had been a staple in the DIY scene for nearly a decade by the time their millennial sleeper hit thumped the band into the rock, radio rock stratosphere. The accompanying Bleed American LP, which would reach certified platinum status just over a year after its release, came on the heels of the band's 1999 major label masterpiece, Clarity, a critical and commercial turning point for the group after years of grinding in the emo underground alongside acts like Sunny Day Real Estate and Colorado's own Christie Front Drive. Now, three decades and nearly a dozen albums later, the Hard Scrabble Quartet pauses for a rare moment of reflection as they mark 30 years with the 30-city anniversary tour, coming to Red Rocks Amphitheater on July 25, alongside co-headliners Manchester Orchestra, and Australian upstarts, Middle Kids. According to Jimmy Eat World co-founder Lind, whose dad once coached the Denver Zephyrs minor league baseball team and whose muscular per percussion has propelled the band since day one, the milestone offers a chance to take stock after the whirlwind of the band's relentless and remarkable career so far. Quote, I don't think we really stop and look back too often. We've always been kind of future oriented. We're thinking about the next thing we want to tackle, Lynn says. You put one foot in front of the other for so long, and then you finally turn back and look around and say, wow, we've accomplished a lot, unquote. But when it comes to measuring these accomplishments, the band's yardstick isn't eye-popping record sales, stadium-filling tours, or front-of-the-pack chart positions. To hear bassist Rick Birch tell it, there's a simpler motivation for chasing the light with his bandmates all these years, and it hasn't changed much since he joined the ranks in 1995. Quote, for me, the band was initially about having fun with friends and seeing new places, and coincidentally, that's still one of the main things I enjoy about it, unquote, says Birch, who took over on bass ahead of the band's formative sophomore LP, Static Prevails, quote, that's how it has become such a massive part of my life. It's that thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, unquote. The Middle of the Ride Adkins shares a similar appreciation for the basic formula 
that has kept Jimmy Eat World from careening down the path of too many long-running music acts who outlive their sense of urgency. He says it's about cultivating gratefulness around the fundamentals. Quote, If you're alive in your 40s, to have something in your life that's been a consistent thing for most of it, if not the main thing, is kind of wild. And it's definitely not an opportunity that a lot of people get to take advantage of, he says. Gratitude is the first thing I go to. It's rare, so you better enjoy what you're doing. Not everyone gets to do it. So if you're not actively seeking out something rewarding every single day that you're doing this thing, then what are you doing? Your time is the most expensive thing you have. It's priceless. Don't waste it. Unquote. This keen sense of our numbered days is key when it comes to maintaining Adkins' sense of the urgent and ever-present now that something loud he still feels part of with the mighty little emo band he started in the Arizona desert those 30 years ago. For the front man of what has since arguably become the most defining pop rock act of the century, that mindfulness helps keep his feet on the ground during each short step of an epic journey. Quote, Not everybody is going to come along for the ride with you every time. I'm under no illusion that even our most hardcore fan is going to love everything we do. That's not going to happen, he says. So it's about keeping things in perspective. Celebrate the small victories and don't let this stuff go to your head because you're just lucky to be here, unquote. Bonus, Jimmy Eat Colorado, Arizona's favorite sons on the charms of the Centennial State. Quote, Colorado was an important place for us because we could drive there to start a tour circuit. We made friends early on with the guys in Christie Front Drive who all lived in the Denver area. Almost every tour or eastward loop, Denver or Boulder actually, would be on our list of early places to hit. We played all the time at the old Arapahoe Warehouse in Denver where some of the Christie Front Drive guys lived and Club 156 in Boulder. It's funny, stuff like that I can recall instantly. People I met last week, my kids' friends' parents' names? No, but Club 156 in Boulder? Yeah, I still remember everything about playing there. Unquote. From Jim Atkins, Vocals and Guitar. Quote, My parents lived in a tiny town called Timnath, Colorado. It's just outside of Fort Collins. They're no longer with us, unfortunately, but in the early days of the band, we would go and stay with them when we didn't really have any other place. They had a fifth-wheel camper they parked on their property where we would stay and hang out. They were awesome grandparents. I have vivid memories of going to visit them after landing in Denver and driving up to Fort Collins. I always have a soft spot for that. It's one of the prettiest drives. Whenever we do it now, I try to make sure I'm sitting at the front of the bus by the window to take it in. Zach Lind, drums. Quote, I visit Colorado any chance I get. I'm an avid mountain bike rider, so one of my favorite places is Mary Jane over by Winter Park. You know, ride the lift up and have gravity take you down. 
I spent a few summers going up there riding bikes and just enjoying being up at the top of the Rockies. Just beautiful. I'd like to do more hiking, particularly around the Boulder area and around Red Rocks. I just haven't had the opportunity yet. So I'm hoping we get out there early enough to be able to head out on the morning of the show and do a little exploring, unquote. Rick Birch, bass. On the bill, Jimmy Eat World with Manchester Orchestra and Middle Kids, 6.30 p.m., Tuesday, July 25, Red Rocks Amphitheater. Feature. Weed Between the Lines. Growing Pains. Outdoor cannabis operations could be the key to making this energy-intensive industry more sustainable. By Will Brenza, July 20, 2023. Cultivating cannabis is an environmentally dirty business. Indoor grows require immense energy to keep the lights on, the HVAC systems running, and the temperature consistent. Cannabis production in Colorado emits more carbon than the state's mining industry, according to CSU researchers. Researchers in Illinois found that cannabis requires more water than almost any other commodity crop. Colorado's Marijuana Enforcement Division reports more than 1.2 million plants are cultivated monthly statewide. The cumulative effect on the environment is not insignificant. If it continues at this rate, the consequences will stack up. But Eloisa Lewis has a solution, grow outdoors. Lewis is the founder of New Climate Science, a consulting company that connects researchers and creatives in search of solutions to reverse global warming. Quote, We want to help cannabis cultivators and producers and warehouses, everyone in the supply chain, adopt sustainable practices, unquote, she says. New Climate Culture works with farmers and agricultural companies across the board, but cannabis cultivators are its bread and butter. Lewis has a soft spot. Cannabis was the first crop she ever farmed. She developed a passion for the plant and a fascination with the most sustainable ways to cultivate it. After years of research, working on farms, and learning from masters of regenerative forms of agriculture, Lewis believes there is a clean way of growing cannabis in a circular economy. Quote, When you farm something sustainably, it's going to detox the environment, Lewis says. It's going to pull pollutants out of the air and return them to the soil. It's going to help nourish and create more living, robust soil. Unquote. And it all starts with farming cannabis outdoors instead of indoors. First and foremost, because it makes the plants more resilient to disease and pests, Lewis likens it to a human's immune system becoming more robust with exposure to pathogens. Indoor-grown plants are raised in a sterile environment that weakens their genetics, making them more prone to disease and pestilence over generations. In fact, Lewis has seen the practice in action and knows it improves crops. She works with a farm in Connecticut called the CBG Gurus, run by Sean McGill. 
she calls McGill's acreage a, quote, world-class demonstration site where the best regenerative practices are actively in place, unquote. The operation collects rainwater throughout the year to supplement water usage and insulate against municipal grid shutdowns and natural disasters. CBG gurus also practice polyculture, raising chickens and rabbits and growing fungi, radishes, strawberries, and fruit trees. The animals spread seeds through excrement and till soil with their beaks and feet. The crops are left unharvested so they can decay into the soil, enriching it. Lewis is a huge proponent of both J-A-D-A-M, JADAM, and K-N-F farming. These styles of regenerative farming come from Korea and implement organic indigenous fertilizer. Farmers take bacterial cultures from the soil and use the natural enzymes present to repel pests. It's also an opportunity to cut costs. Ordering industrial agricultural fertilizers online can cost as much as $30 a gallon, whereas natural enzyme-based pesticides cost as little as $7 a gallon to make and produce no carbon footprint associated with shipping. The same goes for energy usage. Outdoor cultivators won't be using HVAC systems or artificial lights. On top of that, there's no need to import fresh soil and growing substrates like rock wool and cocoa choir. There are limitations, she admits. Farming outdoors requires more land and would likely require some kind of subsidy from the state government to encourage these kinds of best practices. But it is possible. Quote, it's not so much about being more expensive, Lewis says. It's more like, what are we spending our money on? Isn't the value of a repaired ecosystem and a regenerative farm worth the expense? Unquote. Cuisine, good taste, bigger and better. Former Oak sous chef takes over the helm at Denver's Redeemer Pizza by Colin Wren, July 20, 2023. When Devin Donahue walked into Babette's Bakery in Longmont looking for a job in 2020, he was surprised by a question. Do you do pizza? Donahue thought to himself, why does this keep happening to me? Pizza is foundational to Donahue's career. He started slinging pies when he was 17 back in his hometown, working at the Memphis Pizza Cafe. After relocating to Colorado, he opened Pizza Bar 66 in Lyons in 2012 as chef and owner alongside friend and business partner Gavin Moore. Armed with a lifetime of pizza pedagogy, Donahue ran the takeout program at Babette's throughout the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Quote, I really learned about dough on a new level, unquote, he says. On April 20 of this year, Donahue took over the helm at Redeemer Pizza, the Larimer Street eatery considered by many as the best pizza place in the Mile High City. 
Redeemer Pizza launched in 2021 under the leadership of the same folks who own and operate nearby Temple of All Things Pasta, Dio Mio. Redeemer's mission is simple. Craft top-notch pizza with the same less-is-more approach that made Dio Mio a hit. They have not only succeeded, but continue to step up their game and hone their technique. While Redeemer was getting in motion, Donahoe was similarly sharpening his talents at Oak at 14th in Boulder. He acted as part of a team of sous chefs delivering a series of elegant seasonal menus during his 18-month stay. But Donahoe's entry point to the Boulder cuisine scene was Mountain Sun, where he met chef John Bissell, who was just beginning a career that would eventually find him running the show at Oak. Quote, John's a unicorn, says Donahoe, adding that Bissell's influence has helped shape him into the chef he is today. While pizza has been an ongoing theme in Donahoe's career, he also takes his fine dining chops seriously. Early on, he attended the Texas Culinary Academy in Austin, a now shuttered school associated with Le Cordon Bleu. After graduating, he returned to Memphis, where he worked at Jarrett's under Chef Rick Farmer, doing bread and American regional cuisine. Quote, Bigger and better has always been my get-down. I really like unique stuff, and I like a challenge, unquote, says Donahue. His approach at Redeemer is similar to White's. Both chefs have an elevated vision that works nicely alongside their unpretentious philosophy and method when it comes to both deep dish and New York style pies. The now collaborators first cooked together roughly a year and a half ago during Oak's Italian Week, where White was acting as a visiting chef and making his signature pasta. New to the menu is the pork shank. The hefty plate arrives tender and bone-in, the meat having been braised, fried, glazed, and then coated in a thick outer crust of toasted sesame and pepperoni crumble. It's a refined dish, one that would have no problem fitting in on one of Bissell's fabulous menus at Oak. He also updated the sandwich offerings to include the pork banh mi, which has thick slabs of fried pork cutlet, house-made pâté mousse, pickled daikon, and carrots on top of house-made focaccia. The bread alone is reason enough to visit. Non-pizza items have always been an attraction at Redeemer, but Donahoe has upped the ante. But his goal for Redeemer is bigger than revising the menu and updating the culture. Quote, I want Denver to be known for fire pizza. I'm trying to make people stoked and have somewhere they can be proud of and hold down when they go somewhere else, he says. It's important to keep your block hot, unquote. Beyond championing his home turf, Donahoe wants to rank among his idols, like New York's Scars Pizza and Danny Boy in L.A. Quote, we're pushing the envelope on what a pizzeria can do, unquote, he says. Donahue says there will be plenty to look forward to 
as he continues to establish his footing at the pizzeria, even though he's been sworn to secrecy on some of the details. Quote, we don't like to count our chickens, but we do like to cook them. Unquote. Cuisine nibbles, chewing the faux fat, boulders meaty, M-E-A-T-I, delivers a new mushroom-based steak that tastes and chews like the real thing. It's like a scene from the Matrix films set in the produce aisle at Sprouts. A woman offers a sample of a new local meat alternative. My mind knows it isn't steak, even though it smells like steak. I'm told it isn't meat, but once I hear the sizzling and start chewing, it no longer matters. My mouth says, mmm, flank steak, unquote. I expect to be underwhelmed by the classic steak from Bolter's Meaty Foods. As green apple Jolly Ranchers are to real Granny Smith apples, so are most plant-based burgers compared to fresh ground beef. I'm not vegan or vegetarian, but I've tasted generations of pulled jackfruit barbecue and plant-based burgers in the line of duty. Most of them taste like good faith imitations, simulations of the flavor and texture of meat meant to remind you of flesh, but the nose and taste buds know foe, F-A-U-X. Meaty's steaks and chicken-like cutlets are different. They don't crumble, but tear into chewable muscle-like fibers, minus the fat and bone. They also lack the blast of fermented flavor that makes meatless burgers decidedly not taste like ground beef. Quote, everyone wants to eat a clean, healthy diet, but at the end of the day, flavor wins, unquote, says Christina Ra, Vice President of Marketing Communications at Meaty Foods. Fleshy Fungi. Meaty's co-founders, Tyler Huggins and Justin Whiteley met while pursuing PhDs at the University of Colorado Boulder. Quote, they realized they both had a profound interest in creating a more sustainable future, unquote, Ra says. The duo decided to focus on meat alternatives. Quote, they went through thousands of species and strains of mycelium, to find the one fungi that grows fast, is naturally super nutritious, and incapable of producing toxins. Flavor-wise, the one they found is a blank canvas for foods, unquote, she says. Meaty launched in 2022, and its products are currently only available at Sprouts Markets. Grown rapidly in fermentation tanks at Meaty's new 100,000-square-foot Thornton facility, the fungi is harvested, seasoned, and minimally processed into steaks or cutlets before being frozen. Quote, Meaty is a complete whole food protein with all the fiber and tons of vitamins and micronutrients intact, unquote, Ra says. Making meaty taste meaty. Right now, the meaty lines includes classic steak, carne asada steak, classic cutlet, and crispy cutlet. Like preparing chicken, beef, or pork, 
Cooking meaty's fungi flesh requires some attention to detail if you want it to taste great. The classic steak and classic cutlets, like plain steak or chicken breast, are bland. They need to be marinated or seasoned while sautéing or grilling. The cooking time depends on whether you start with the product frozen or thawed. The crispy cutlet with gluten-free breading is a textural dead ringer for the type of boneless fried chicken that launched the sandwich wars a few years ago. Just spray it with a little oil and bake in an air fryer until brown and crispy. Cooking Meaty's carne asada steaks at home, I follow Ra's advice, drying off the thawed steaks, frying them extra long in a little coconut oil, and flipping them several times. It's also important to let the meaty, like roast turkey or beef, rest for a few minutes after cooking. The result is the caramelization, chew, and crust that gives meat a lot of its appeal. Flavor-wise, meaty manages to mimic the umami notes that make meat so craveable. The carne asada doesn't need any additional seasoning. Quote, My kids will use the cat's classic cutlet in stir-fries or with some barbecue sauce. The carne asada is spicier, so that's for tacos for the adults, unquote, Ra says. Because it holds its shape, Meaty works well in a range of recipes. Nobody is pretending that meaty perfectly replicates an aged Wagyu ribeye or a farm-raised chicken, but with its huge environmental and health benefits, this beef and chicken just might shift the protein paradigm. Where to dine like the Joker? Colorado is still basking in the glow of the Denver Nuggets' recent crowning as NBA champions. The triumph spotlighted the team's down-to-earth MVP, Serbian-born Nikola the Joker Jokic. A reader wonders, where can I taste the Serbian cuisine the Joker loves? The simple answer is that no Boulder or Denver eateries specialize in Serbian cuisine. However, it's complicated once you realize how close Serbia is to Eastern European countries such as Greece and Turkey. For instance, Serbia is only about 600 miles from Ukraine. By comparison, cities 600 or less miles from Boulder include Phoenix, Las Vegas, and Oklahoma City. Serbia's crossroads cuisine ranges from schnitzels, sarma, meat and rice-filled cabbage rolls, and jibanika, egg and cheese filo pie, to paprika chili spiced stews and grilled meats. There are plenty of local spots where you can taste dishes similar to those served in Serbia. In Boulder, you can sample the Mediterranean aspects of the cuisine at Kalita Greek Cafe, 2426 Arapaho Avenue, and the Mediterranean Market, 2690 28th Street. Afghani flavors are on the menu at Silk Road Grill and Market, 2607 Pearl Street in Boulder. Westminster is home to Cracovia Restaurant, 
8121 West 94th Avenue, which dishes Polish favorites like cabbage rolls. Closely related to Russian fare is available in Denver at Masha and the Bear, 12101 East Iliff Avenue, and at Molotov Kitchen, 3333 East Colfax Avenue. Hard-to-find Armenian goodies are a delight at Denver's family-owned House of Bread, 2020 South Parker Road. Denver and Aurora also offer many Middle Eastern spots, such as the delightful Istanbul Cafe and Bakery, 850 South Monaco Parkway, Unit 9, and its dozen baklava variations. To taste a wider variety of foods from the region, check out the Blood Sausages and Beer at the Polish Food Festival, August 26-27 in Denver, and the Diverse Fair at the Taste of the Middle East Festival, September 9 in Aurora. Local Food News, 40 Years of Loaves Great Harvest Bread Company, 2525 Arapaho Avenue, is celebrating 40 years of grinding wheat to make bread in Boulder. It opened a decade after the village coffee shop, 1605 Folsom Street, opened across the way on Folsom Street. Happy 13th birthday to Eats and Sweets, 401 South Public Road, the cute Lafayette dessert, ice cream, and lunch spot. Fried soft-shell crab and beef wrapped in betel leaves are dished at Tu's Kitchen, that's T-U apostrophe S, 6500 West 120th Avenue in Broomfield, an offshoot of Boulder's Shea Tui, T-H-U-Y, 2655 28th Street. Coming soon, Rocks and Hops Brewing, 2516 49th Street in Boulder. Words to chew on, bacon dangers. Quote, slicing a warm slab of bacon is a lot like giving a ferret a shave. No matter how careful you are, somebody's going to get hurt. Unquote. Alton Brown. John Lendorf hosts Radio Nibbles Thursdays on KGNU. Podcasts are at bit.ly slash radio nibbles. Events. Climate-friendly meadow music with Cool Boulder. Saturday, July 22, 2023, 9.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. at Chautauqua Park, 900 Baseline Road in Boulder. Jeff and Paige perform a free, outdoor, climate, family-friendly kids concert on Chautauqua Green to close out the 23 Meadow Music season. Events in person. Radical Lafayette, exploring the violence amid 1920s coal mining strike. Friday, July 21, Saturday, July 22, Wednesday, July 26, and Thursday, July 27, all at 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Lafayette History Museum, 108 East Simpson Street, Lafayette, Colorado. 
The Lafayette History Museum's newest exhibit, Radical Lafayette, the Colorado Coal Strike of 1927-28, explores an era when the industrial workers of the world, IWW, or Wobblies, fanned the flames of discontent. All eyes were on Lafayette as the town became the center of the Wobblies' radical and militant workers' rights movement. The exhibit features the roles played by women and the KKK. More information is available at lafayettehistoricalsociety.org. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Eric Levine. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.